bride and water with the word. And so now we, as your people, come to you and ask, would you wash us in water with the word? Would you speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are back in Mark. So I just closed my notes. Mark chapter 5. So if you remember from about six weeks ago, we were in the very first part of Mark chapter 5, end of Mark chapter 4, where Jesus calmed the seas and then he calmed the man, the the man who was demon-possessed. He cast the demon out of that man on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and now he has gone back across to the, to the west side, as we read here in verse 21 of Mark 5, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So, so here we are in, in Mark, as Jesus, we've just looked at two stories where Jesus exercised great power over nature and power over demonic powers, over demonic forces in this world. And now he's going to come back to the west side of the lake, back probably to Capernaum. It doesn't tell us specifically, but that's probably where he is. And we're going to see two more stories that are that are woven together. But I think to understand this, we have to understand an Old Testament concern. Because we read these stories with a different set of eyes than the people who were originally there and who would have originally been reading Mark would have. Long about February every year, lots and lots of Christians are reading in their Bibles and they're thinking, okay, we're going to do, we're going to read through the Bible this year. And then they get to this book in the middle of the Pentateuch, Leviticus. And (laughs) Leviticus, it's interesting. It actually, it's not, it's not boring in the way that sometimes other books like there's a lot of numbers in the book of Numbers that can really drag you down. Or you get into the back end of Joshua, and there's all these descriptions of land allotments, and you're like, I have no idea where any of these places are. That can be really confusing. Leviticus isn't like that. But what Leviticus has is this concern for cleanness that makes no sense to us. Like, what, what is the obsession with ceremonial cleanness and all the washings that have to take place and all the seems like a bajillion ways you can make yourself unclean and unfit to be in the presence of the Lord, to approach the temple, to bring sacrifice, to even sit on a couch. Like there, there are all these things that constitute uncleanness. And, and that's a, it's an idea that is totally foreign to us. Generally, uh, most and then what most biblical scholars would describe the idea of uncleanness as doing, it's not necessarily synonymous with sin, but it's synonymous with the effects of sin. Uncleanness generally it has to do with different kinds of sickness or uh, fluids coming from the body that that are they symbolize a, a distinction between us as creatures and our creator, so that. There's not just categories of holy and unholy in the Old Testament law. There are things that are holy, set apart to God, things that are defiled and that they're unclean, and then there's just common things. And those common things can either be set apart to holy purposes sometimes, or they can become, through defilement, unclean. And they can become unclean either through sin or through these whole pile of ways that just naturally human beings are not like our creator. We're, we're 
creatures rather than the creator. But those types of ceremonial uncleanness, for at least a time, sometimes it was a lifetime condition, but but at least for a time, what they functionally did was they cut you off from the people of God. And then there were all these processes you could go through, all these ceremonies, washings, etc., that perhaps could bring you back in. But so long as you were unclean, you were not part of the people. You weren't admitted into temple worship or tabernacle worship. You didn't have access to God in the way that somebody who was clean did. And what we're going to see today is is Jesus addressing what is the, the primary concern with the book of Leviticus, which in some sense is the primary concern with the Pentateuch as a whole and, and even the whole Old Testament. How can unclean people come before a holy God? The, the central part, the central chapter in the book of Leviticus is in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement where the people's sins are atoned for, their uncleanness is made clean in the eyes of God so he could pass over their sins for another year until the Day of Atonement came around again. And here we're going to meet two people who are very unclean in a ceremonial sense. And how does Jesus address that? That's what we're going to find out. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again to the other In the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, then came, sorry, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's 
father and mother and those who were with him and went into the child where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So this text has basically three movements. First, you have Jairus coming to Jesus with this humble request. This man who was a ruler of the synagogue, it says. So there would have been these lay leaders, the elders of the synagogue, who they weren't paid religious professionals, but they were respected people in the community who were in charge of the the synagogue worship. And so probably in a town the size of Capernaum, there was more than one of these guys helping run the synagogue. But Jairus is one of them. So he's a respected man in the community and and someone with some social standing. He's, he's got a, seems probably a decent sized home. Those who are there gathered around, there seems to be a crowd at the end of the chapter. And this man comes and he humbles himself before Jesus. He, Jesus by this point is already a very controversial figure. And yet Jairus is so desperate because of his daughter's need that he he says this Jesus character has he's he's healed others and and I'm going to take a chance that that he will come even to me and he goes and he he lays himself down before Jesus which I mean if you're reading through all of the the whole chapter in Mark that's the same thing that the demon possessed man had done when Jesus came across the shore in the the early part of the chapter the man with the demon comes and throws himself down before Jesus. Well, Jairus does the same thing now. He comes and he throws himself before Jesus and asks for him to come and heal his daughter. And Jesus says, yes, I will go. And the second portion of this text, we, we meet this woman who has a fearful faith. She's just terrified to come to Jesus, but she also is desperate. She suffered for 12 years under the hands of these Doctors, it's interesting, this, I mean, this story is told in all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke was a physician, doesn't tell us about suffering under the hands of the doctors, uh, but, but Mark tells us that, you know, she, she tried everything. She's at the end of her rope, and this constant impurity that she's experiencing with this flow of blood would mean she is essentially cut off from society. She can't sit on anybody's couch. She can't lay on anybody's bed without making it impure. She couldn't go to the temple to worship. She couldn't touch other people. And yet here she is so desperate. She thinks, if I can even touch the hem of his garment, I will be made clean. And so she does what she should not do. According to the religious rules, according to the law, she should not be touching other people. And yet she presses through because she knows Jesus is the only place where I can get help. And it's interesting, as you look at her action, really what what we would say if we're talking to this woman is, you should go up to Jesus and ask him to heal you, right? Like so many others do. And yet she's terrified, and she's almost got like this magical thinking, well, maybe if I can just touch his clothes. Uh, Some commentators point out that 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 is in line almost exactly with the way that the kind of magical thinking that many Greeks and Romans had towards healing as if there was a, a healer, you just touched their garments and they made you well, like the magic flowed out. And yet, even though her faith is imperfect, Jesus is happy to 
respond. She says, he says, daughter, your, your faith has made you well. He heals her even though her faith expresses itself in a way that maybe is less than ideal. And in, in that tension, like you, you've got to feel Jairus is walking with Jesus, right, to his, to his house. And now Jesus is stopping, and he's interacting with the, the crowd and his disciples and this woman. And, and Jairus is probably thinking, hey, my daughter's dying. The disciples are almost surely feeling like, hey, we're on this mission to go save this girl. And why are you stopping to ask who touched you in a crowd full of people? People are touching you all around. And, and there's this tension that's building through the text. And Jesus doesn't care. He stops and addresses this woman. After he's addressed her, then he goes on with Jairus. These guys come to Jairus and say, don't, don't bother him any longer. Your daughter is dead. And, and Jesus says, no. She's just sleeping. Now we, we know from here and from the other gospels, she was dead. She was literally dead. But, but what Jesus is saying is that this is not final. That he's, he's not saying, no, they actually got the diagnosis wrong. He's saying, have faith. Have faith, Jairus, that your daughter will live again. And when Jesus says to the crowd at the house that she is sleeping, they laugh at him because it is ridiculous. They know what dead is in their society. They're familiar with death. They're there. We don't know if it's actual family members there weeping and wailing or if sometimes there would be hired mourners. Don't know if maybe that's who's there already. But there are people here wailing for this girl. And Jesus goes in and the creator speaks to his creation and speaks life back to her. Little girl, wake up. Little girl, arise. And she's restored to her parents. Now, rather than walking through this in order the way I kind of normally would, what I want to look at is first we're going to look at three quick troubles, <laughs> three statements that uh, kind of bothered me as I read them and I had to think through. But then I want to spend the rest of our time looking at, at three aspects of Jesus' holiness that are revealed through this text. The troubles are three statements of Jesus. Two are direct and one's implied. The first statement is verse 30 where Jesus asks, who touched me? Now the disciples are confused by that statement in a common sense way everybody's touching you. Why are you asking who touched me? But I think it's pretty easy for us as modern Christians to say, why would Jesus ask that question? Jesus is God. What? He? Why doesn't he know who touched him? But it, I mean, the text clearly tells us, he says, who touched me? He felt the power had gone out of him. The disciples say, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. So there, there seems to be a sense in which Jesus doesn't know which of these people touched him. He sensed the power go out, but he is looking to see who it was. And there are multiple times like this in the Gospels where it seems that though Jesus in his incarnation still is truly God, he voluntarily limits his access to divine knowledge. So, I mean, that's, that's how we understand a statement later on in the Gospels where Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man will return, not, not even the Son of Man, but only the Father. Well, that's not because God the Father is hiding things from God the Son in their eternal counsels. But as a true man on this earth, Jesus limited his access to that divine knowledge. And, I mean, you see this in, in like, Luke 2 where it says Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As Jesus 
in his humanity, he grew in his knowledge. He grew in his understanding. As a boy in the temple, he's asking questions and giving answers, and he's learning all through his life. And so in this situation, it doesn't seem like he's going to tap into his godness and say, okay, this person snuck through the crowd. No, he he's going to ask, and he wants her to respond. And part of her response of faith is to be honest with Jesus and say, I am the one who touched you. He's, he's calling forth from her uh, a confession of faith to, so that she can make known what he has done for her in healing her and, and really making clear her own need. So Jesus calls that forth from her and it says, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Well, telling Jesus the whole truth in the midst of this crowd means that she's making a public proclamation of what Jesus has done for her. The second statement that we see here is Jesus says in verse 34, your faith has made you well. Does faith have magical healing powers? Is faith a magic healing sauce that you can just say, I have faith, and boom, automatically you're well. Well, no. I mean, there's all kinds of Christians who, genuine Christians who believe in the power of God, who pray and pray and pray for things, and God in his wisdom says no. Right? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But what this woman has done is she's gone to the one who has the power. And she has demonstrated her faith even if it is kind of like in this magical, I'll just touch his garments way. Jesus is still happy to respond to imperfect faith that is directed towards the perfect savior, right? Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, he doesn't say if you have all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed and you answered all the doctrinal questions perfectly correctly. No, trust the right person and the right person to trust is Jesus. And so that's what she does. And so her faith makes her well because faith is the conduit through which we receive God's grace. Grace is from God. We can't earn it. We can't do anything to deserve it. But by trusting him, it's through that mechanism that that when we trust him, he pours out his grace upon us. Sometimes it's grace that brings healing. Sometimes it's grace that sustains us through the hardship. But he will pour grace upon those who have faith in him. The third statement and we see this sort of thing multiple times in the Gospel of Mark, the early chapters of Mark. Verse 43, it's, it's a contrast with what he did with the woman. So he heals the woman, and he calls forth a public confession from her. He goes into Jairus' house, heals the little girl, brings her back from the dead. But verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to get her something to eat. Jesus is still, in some sense, trying to keep some of the most miraculous things a little quiet. <laughs> I, we, we don't see it here in Mark's gospel, but in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel, we have the feeding of the 5,000. And when that story is recounted in John, John tells us that the crowd came by force and tried to make him king. And that's not the kind of attention Jesus wanted. Jesus came as king of the Jews, as the Messiah. But their idea of who the Messiah was supposed to be was not correct. And so Jesus 
had to correct the notion of who the Messiah is, what he's coming to do in his first coming, in his coming to die, and then be glorified, Luke 24 says. It, th- that had to be corrected before he started telling everybody that he was the Messiah. So those things had to be gotten in order. So that's, I think, the main reason why Jesus is telling them, don't tell anybody what I've done here. So in the time that we have left, I want to consider the holiness of Jesus on display in this text. And we we often think of holiness, I know I've said this before, but we often think of holiness primarily in negative terms, like it's the absence of any impurity. And that is an aspect of holiness in scripture. It's purity, it's righteousness, it's light as opposed to darkness. But holiness is also a statement about purpose. Things in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, are made holy for something, for someone, and that someone is God. The The word holy means sanctified or set apart. And, and so holiness is, the, the purity aspect of holiness is things are purified so that they can be used in this set apart way, used for God. And I think that's an important thing to think about. Impurities are removed in order to be fit for both God's presence and his service. First thing we see about Jesus' holiness in this text is that it is compassionate. He is compassionate and kind. His concern in these two healings is not for his societal status, it's not for his popularity, but it's driven by the need of those who approached him. As we said in verses 22 and 23, when Jairus came to Jesus, Jairus is a man of prestige, and he's throwing himself down on his face before Jesus. And Jairus is taking a risk, because we already know from chapter 3 and verse 6 that the Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting to kill Jesus, already that early in the gospel. They are seeking to kill Jesus, and that's probably not something that's totally unknown to a man like Jairus. He's a, he's a leader in the synagogue. He's probably got friends who are connected either in the Pharisees or the Herodians or both. He knows that Jesus is not the most popular figure with those in authority, and he doesn't care. He's willing to go and prostrate himself before Jesus anyway because his daughter's life is more important to him than his own. We see the same kind of desperation with the woman. This is a woman who, because of her uncleanness, is on the margins of society. She's desperate. These two people are coming from totally opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You have powerful man, authoritative figure, and you've got this woman clear out on the margins. The only thing they have in common is that they both need Jesus. It's pretty easy for us to look out the world around us and either if we've got some status or if we've got some stability to look down on those who have less than us and say, well, you're just not working hard enough or your problems are kind of your own and they're not mine. Like maybe it's not your fault, but I don't need to worry about it. It's not my deal. Or to look up at those who have more than us and to be jealous and to despise them. And here Jesus in this circumstance has people from both ends of the spectrum. And what he sees is their need. He doesn't, he doesn't look at her and say, oh boy, 
maybe if it had gone to a better doctor or maybe if you we don't know what caused her issues if it was something out of her control if it was something she did we have no idea he doesn't look at the man and say well you know what you you've had power and maybe you should have used it to help others more like he doesn't he's not going after them he's there for them with compassion jesus doesn't love the rich or the poor any more than the other there is no partiality with god jesus has compassion on the needy and what jesus sees and what we need to see is that everyone is needy that everyone is in desperate need of christ that starts with seeing yourself that way do you see yourself as in desperate need of the savior or do you feel like you've pretty much got it handled we have to humbly approach him willing to receive his glad provision for us and then we need to think who do i despise do i despise those who are high do i despise those who are low is there a certain class of people or type of person that i just don't like and how could i invite them to jesus the compassionate healer what are their needs where I can tell them Jesus is the answer. Jesus' holiness is a compassionate holiness. We're told elsewhere that when he looked out on the crowds, the crowds, many of whom perhaps would be in the same crowds that condemned him to death, cried crucify him, he looked out on them and he had compassion. He he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Our world is full of sheep who need a shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd. And we know him. And we can tell them about him. We also see that Jesus' holiness is contagious. I know I've pointed this out before, but one of the most striking overlaps in this story with the story of the demoniac in verses 1 through 20 is that all three are unclean. Demon possession, living among the tombs, made you unclean. This woman's issue of blood made her unclean. And the little girl is dead. And death is a form of uncleanness. In fact, uh, one of the connections with most types of uncleanness is that there was a connection that seemed to be made like they they symbolized death. They either led to death or they were part of death or or they they pictured death in some way, like issues of blood. And in the Old Testament, If something clean came in contact with something unclean, the clean thing became unclean. It was, the uncleanness was contagious. It was contaminating that holy or pure thing. And yet Jesus reverses that. When the woman touches Jesus, he doesn't get contaminated. She gets healed. When, when she touches him, the power flows out. Verse 29, the flow of blood dries up and she can feel the healing immediately in her own body. Uh, I was reminded of uh, the old hymn lyric, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? What an odd phrase. Only Christians can talk like that. Are you washed in the blood? Have you been made pure by being covered in someone's blood, the blood of Christ? 
His blood covers our sin. It washes away our impurities. His death, most impure thing of all, is the solution to our death, our death in sin, our physical death one day. Jesus' death is the solution to that. So we should have confidence as we read this text that Jesus, he's he's healed the man of demon possession. He heals the physically sick. He heals the dead. He has the power to save anyone. And so think about that person in your life who you've given up on. Never stop praying. Never stop sharing the gospel. And in your own life, don't ever feel like God gave up on you. He won't, ever. He is willing to save to the uttermost those who have faith in him. We should also, therefore, as Christians, not be afraid of sinners. There, there are some folks who measure their spirituality by their distance from sin and sinners. Well, I don't associate with them. I don't associate with that sort of thing. And while we do need to walk in wisdom, don't put yourself in places where you're going to be particularly tempted and cause yourself to stumble. We need to walk in holiness and not participate in sin. But we also don't live in fear. Greater is he who is in you than greater is than, than he who is in the world, is what First John says. We have to be salt and light in the world, right? <laughs> if we're not around unbelievers, if we're not rubbing shoulders with sinners where they are, rather than waiting for them to get cleaned up to come to us, then we're not doing what Jesus told us to do. Jesus' holiness goes out, and so we need to be spending time in the Word and time with other believers so that we are equipped for that holiness to flow out through us. Our lives should get all over other people. Like Jesus' Jesus, love and, and the conviction of sin because of our holy lives should impact the unbelievers around us because they see it and they say something's different. John 16, I think it is, where Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, convicting concerning sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. That's in connection with the promise of the Spirit to the church. It's in the lives of believers that the Spirit convicts the world of of their sin. But they have to be around believers, living holy lives next to them, with them, in their presence. Not in a judgmental way, but in a way that says, knowing Christ is better. Being forgiven and freed from sin is better. Knowing the truth is better. Not because I'm better, but because Jesus is. He, his, his contagion of holiness should be flowing through us to the world around us. His holiness is also conquering. Jesus overcomes sickness and death. Uh, like I said, these two stories complete the set of stories that begin in chapter 4, verse 35. He has power over the storm, power over demons, power over sickness, power over death itself. So what in your life feels insurmountable? What has been your source of 12 years pain? What part of your life feels like death? In what ways do you feel like perhaps this woman did, dirty or unworthy? Do you believe that Jesus is more powerful than all of those things? More powerful than your sin, more powerful than the sins that have been committed against you. Are you willing, by faith, 
to, like Jairus, humble yourself to say, I'm not good enough on my own. I'm going to get down on my face and ask Jesus for help. No matter what it costs you in social standing or in prestige or in your own pride. Do you believe that the one who said, little girl, wake up, has the same power to raise you in the last day? The healing and the raising that Jesus did on that day in Capernaum were temporary. But the life that we have in Christ now, this side of the cross and the resurrection, is eternal and transformative. He cleanses us, those who by faith trust in Jesus are being cleansed so that we might be put to his holy purposes. So I want to finish by reading Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that in your Son you happily cleanse filthy sinners like us. And you take us from being filthy and dead in our sin. And you transform us. You've given us the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. You've set us apart and made us holy to your purposes. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, our daily cleansing and washing away more and more of our sin and chiseling away at the old man and replacing us, making us into your masterpiece, your image, so that we might do the good works that you've set in front of us to do. Lord, we ask for your help in these things. We need them desperately, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.